Good morning. Go ahead and take your Bible and turn to Genesis chapter 3. We are making progress. And this morning we'll be looking at Genesis chapter 3 verses 8 to 24. And we'll probably take two weeks and then most likely look at Romans 5, 11 to 22. And Brett mentioned in his prayer, the first Adam and the last Adam. And we find that in Romans 5. And then we'll come back into Genesis. But for this morning, verses 8 to 24, and this would be part 1. But I'm just going to read this morning just part of this, not the whole entire section. So I'll read from verses 8 to 13. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves in the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to the man and said to him, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. So I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me from the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you are a fount of grace and life and light and glory. And now as we come to your word we pray that you would open up our eyes, that we could see your glory and even the glory of Christ within your word. And as we see your glory, Lord, as it says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, that we would be transformed ourselves from glory to glory and become more like you. May your spirit work through your word in our hearts this morning. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Has anybody ever said to you, don't do that. And if you do that, there's going to be consequences. Has anybody ever said that to you? Perhaps you said it to your kids this morning. Kids, perhaps you've heard your parents say that this week. Some time ago, when my family and I, that is my parents and my brother, we were hiking in the Smoky Mountains. And there was this ravine. And I can remember, I thought the ravine was probably 100 feet deep. But now that I look back, at it, it was probably 10 feet deep. And there was a vine that went over the ravine and at the bottom of the ravine, there were these big rocks in a stream. And I went to grab on this vine and to swing over it. My dad stopped me and said, don't do that, son. I was about 11 years old. If you do that, you could fall and there will be consequences. And then after that, I'll give you some consequences. So I said, okay, yeah, sure, no problem. Well, later in the day, my brother and I said, dad, we're gonna go outside and toss the football. And so we did. We went outside and tossed a football, but then we added on to that. We went back to that ravine and I got on the rope and I swung across. And to this day, my brother and I, we don't know what happened. For some reason, I, I don't know why, but for some reason, I actually let go. I'm not sure. This is a true story. And I fell 10 feet or so and landed right in between two big rocks. They kind of stuck up. So I I fell right in between them and kind of used my hands as a brace, but I got bruised on my arms a little bit, a little bit on, on my cheek. And 
I, I was petrified, not of the fall, but I was petrified of what? Of dad. Because <laughs> he said there'll be consequences if you fall, then there's going to be greater consequences. And there was no way I, I could hide it. I, I, I was a bruise on my arms and face was a little bit red. So he told my dad and I thought for sure that was going to be it. I, I was going to get it. And so my dad brushed me off. They put ice on my arms, hugged me and kissed me. And my dad said, there will be a consequence because later that evening there was this some kind of fire camp thing that I, I didn't get to go to. But even though there was that consequence and the consequence of getting hurt, there was also what with my dad? He accepted me. He loved me. He bandaged me. There was mercy and there was grace. And here in this passage in Genesis, we see the consequences of sin, but almost every verse, there is tons of grace and mercy and compassion in this passage. And I think that we can even say, as we look at this passage in light of the historical setting of Genesis, that God is saying to Israel and to you and I, essential to living well in the promises of God is loading your mind with the consequences of sin and God's astonishing grace. Essential to living well and the promises of God is that we load our minds with the consequences of sin and with God's astonishing grace. And this passage is going to narrate for us the notes say three. I have no idea. It should be four dynamics of this loading our mind with God's grace, but yet there's consequences of sin, and yet we'll see there is always this grace. And in fact, the whole passage ends with grace because verse 24 says that God stationed these cherubim angels to guard the tree of life. So Adam and Eve wouldn't eat the tree of life and then live forever in a state of spiritual deadness. That itself is an act of grace. But yet in this passage from beginning to end, from verses 8 to 24, is also dynamically intertwined consequences of sin. So when you sin and I sin, there are consequences. But yet there's also the grace of God. Also, we can step back from this and even remind ourselves of chapter one. Chapter one was mainly about being created in the image of God. We are God's representatives. We are God's ambassadors. We have a commission from God as humans to reflect, to resemble the, the Lord and, and to give him glory, even to represent him to a lost world. How do we do that? One way that we can do that is by swallowing the, the sour pill of consequences of sin. Be yet at the same time as you swallow that, and if you're looking at the Lord, if you're looking at Jesus, then you also see grace. And we have this throughout the Bible. You have Ephesians 2 talks about that black, bleak backdrop, Ephesians 2 being dead in sin. But then verse 4 says what? You have been made alive in Christ. Romans 5 and Genesis 3 is really a, a narration form of Romans 5, 11 through 22. Romans 5, 11 through 22 is where there was sin, there was what? Much more grace because of Christ. And we have that in this passage this morning, but it's narrated. 
But in the historical context, remember, Israel was winding around. And the nation Israel had been redeemed by God, delivered by God from bondage. One of the first things they do when Moses brings down the law of God, instead of being thankful and worshiping the, uh, the Lord, they've worshiped false gods. And though there is a consequence, God forgives, Israel moves on. And then what happens? Are, are, are they perfect people, a perfect nation? They grumble. They're immoral. Soon, even those grumbling or moral people after 40 years, they, they pass away. They didn't have the faith to enter into the promised land. If there's a new generation to enter into the promised land. And somewhere during that time, they receive the Pentateuch, the, the book of Genesis. So I want us to remember that this passage is given to the nation Israel as they are a people that, that don't have a home. They don't have a place that they can call their own yet. They're going into the promised land, but they're not there yet. They are living in a difficult time, perhaps more difficult than we are. They're living in a desert, in a wilderness, and going into a promise that they have to even physically fight for. So this morning, we want to say, how can we, as Israel had a hard time with living in and seizing God's promises, we can too. Well, how do we do that? How did they do that? I think this passage is given for that reason. And the Persians used to use this phrase, John Owen, load your mind with the consequences of your sin. But yet at the same time, this passage narrates over and over again also the grace of God. So let's look at this first dynamic. There are four dynamics that this passage would narrate for us. The first dynamic is this. Understand that unconfessed sin will hinder your fellowship with God. Unconfessed sin will hinder your fellowship with the Lord. And I'm speaking to believers. If you don't know the Lord, if you haven't repented and trusted Jesus, then you have a relationship with God in terms of him creating you. But he's not your dear, sweet Lord. You don't have a salvific relationship. You don't have a personal relationship and you can't have fellowship with him. When I'm talking this morning about fellowship, what I mean is this sweet adoration of affection that you have for the Lord and you know the Lord has for you. And this passage will teach us as we look at Adam, as you look at Adam and Eve, that when you have unconfessed sin, that, that glad, enjoyable fellowship you have with the Lord is damaged, it's hindered, it's, it's broken. Undealt with sin drives you away. Look at this passage. Who runs away? Is it God that runs away? Look at the passage. Verse 8. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Verse 8. God was walking in the garden. He came to them to have fellowship with them. Verse 9. The Lord calls to them. So already we see in the grace of God. God was already there walking wanting, desiring to walk with them, even after Adam and Eve had sinned. Verse 9, God initiates calling to them, but already Adam and Eve had what? Verse 8, they had already hid themselves in the presence of the Lord, which is not very smart, not very wise. They knew that God had made everything, that he is sovereign Lord over all things, and yet they're trying to hide from the Creator. So we can see right away this consequence of sin is especially if we're not confessing it that we want to run from god 
it's not as believers, it's not that God runs from us. We actually want to run from God and don't want to have fellowship with him because of, of that guilt. But if you look at this passage, who is pursuing who? The Lord is pursuing them. Now, let's even more look at the details of this passage, and we can see several things. First, look at verse 8. This is what's called a theophany. That is, in the Old Testament, God appears. And here, it's probably the pre-incarnate Lord Jesus Christ, most likely. And when you look at verse 8, it talks about, they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden of the cool of the day. The cool of the day is this idea of a breeze. Often in the Middle East, it was toward the evening when you'd feel this nice, cold, or cool breeze. And it could be that this is later in the day where the Lord comes into the garden to have fellowship with the man and with the woman, with Adam and Eve. And what's implied here strongly is he's doing this to have fellowship with them. They heard the sound of the Lord walking. What, what, what would that mean? And there's a lot, of, a lot of speculation, but nobody knows for sure what that means, that they heard the Lord God walking. Was the Lord uh, humming? Was he singing? Or is it simply referring to verse 9, the Lord is calling out to them? No one knows, but what we can say is that verse 8 and following is showing that God is initiating having a, a tender, affectionate relationship with Adam and Eve. He wants to spend time with them. And apparently that was the norm. But as we keep looking at the passage in verse 8, they hid themselves. Why would they hide themselves? Well, as we look down, God calls out to them. And what does Adam say in verse 10? I was what? I was afraid. So soon after sin, Adam is what? Afraid. Of who? Of God. But it's not a godly fear. It's an ungodly fear. When you look here at the passage in verse 8, it says, he and his wife hid themselves. And even verse 10, I was afraid. This is not a godly fear. It isn't this awe and, and this alarm that Adam and Eve have that God is awesome. And if I stand before him, I would have no, no, no hope. And so I, I run to him and bow down before him for his mercy. It isn't that kind of fear. Remember Isaiah saw the glory of the Lord. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And what did Isaiah do? I'm a man that's undone. John the Apostle saw the glory of Jesus and he fell down like a dead man. There is, in other words, there is this fear, a true fear of God, which leads us to, like in Ecclesiastes and in the book of Proverbs, which leads us to have this amazing awe and alarm of God where we don't run from God, but it's a type of fear where you run to God. Because you're afraid of God so much, you know you have no hope. So you run to have refuge in him. And that's the difference. Ungodly fear, you run from him. Godly fear, you run to him and hide in him through Jesus. So we see here in this passage that Adam and Eve have this ungodly fear. They, they have this guilt and shame, and they're hiding on to their sin. They're not running to God saying, here's what I did. Please forgive me, God. It's, I feel guilty, and I'm ashamed, and I, I'm, I'm going to run from God. I'm not going to run to God. That's the difference between a godly fear and an ungodly fear. 
But what does the Lord do? You can look at verse 9. Yahweh, remember all capitals, Lord in verse 9. Lord, all capitals is Yahweh. Yahweh, God, that covenant establishing God, calls to man and says, where are you? Did God not know where they were? Were Adam and Eve successful in hiding from God? No, it's a rhetorical question. And we'll talk about that in a moment. But God is asking a question, seeking to draw them out. But this is grace. And now think of the Bible and think of the, the whole context. Soon Israel will go into the promised land. They will conquer the promised land, the, the book of Joshua. And then what happens in the book of Judges? Is Israel faithful in the book of Judges? No, over and over and over again, they are unfaithful. And each time, what does the Lord do? He pursues them. He, he'll rise up a deliverer that will deliver them from some type of bondage and even back to God. And then what happens is they fall away again. And then what does God do? God then he'll pursue them. Think about David. David committed adultery, murder. He lied. He covered it up. What happens? God does what? God pursues him. God sends who to him? God sent Samuel to him. And Samuel presents this parable about the wickedness of a man and some lambs. And then David ends up being convicted and says, what? I am the, I'm, I'm that man. I'm that man. And then think about Jesus. Jesus did what? God did what? God, the son became a man and he came to seek and to save the lost. In other words, it, it is a character of God, a characteristic of God, that even in the midst of defiant sin, God is gracious and, and, and merciful, and he pursues those that, that are lost. Now, God is holy. Exodus 34, 7, by no means would God let the guilty go unpunished. But God is always, he, he's characterized by mercy and grace, seeking to save and seeking to deliver. Even when Adam and Eve are running from God because of this guilt and because of this shame. Verse 10, I was afraid because I was naked. The whole idea of that is the idea of shame and, and, and feeling guilty. There is no reason for them to feel guilty and ashamed or having no clothes. First, it's the only two people in the world. Second, they're married. And third, it's holy before God. But they were feeling selfish and and sinful and exalting themselves. And so they felt this guilt and shame which drove them away from God. And so God pursues them. And as I mentioned, when you look at this passage, look how God is shepherding them. And this again is the grace of God. God, he asked these questions, where are you? Verse 11, who told you this? Verse 13, what is this? you have done the lord could have come in and he could have came with a bolt of lightning <laughs> you sinner you're a sinner you're the first person ever to sin good job adam you blew it the whole whole universe now is plunged into sin because of you good job buddy is that what what god does he asks questions in order to get adam and eve to what to think to consider what they've done He's shepherding them. And even that is an act of grace. You know, my, my, my first reaction, if my kids sin, is boom, bring the lightning bolt of judgment. Often that, that can be the first thought in my mind. 
and there was a time and a place where we need to be uh, firm and, and a little bit sharp. But there should always be this grace and this mercy. And looking not just at the surface problem, but the underlining issue that's there. And this is what the Lord does. Now, even practically, we can see even more implications, applications for us in the present about this unconfessed sin hindering our fellowship with God. Think of Psalm 66, 18. Do you remember Psalm 66, 18? If we have sin, if we are regarding wickedness in our heart, it says the Lord will not what? Hear us. He won't hear our prayers. It's not that the Lord can't actually hear what we're praying, but he won't especially regard those prayers to necessarily answer them because there's a different work that has to happen in your heart. Or you you, you might remember Proverbs 28, 13. He who conceals his sin and hides them will not prosper, but the one that confesses and forsakes will find compassion. What is interesting in that passage is if we look at the very next verse, Proverbs chapter 28, verse 13, and then look at the very next verse. Verse 13, but he who confesses and forsakes them will find compassion. How blessed is the man who fears always, but he who hardens his heart will fall into calamity. That's an incredible connection between verse 13 and verse 14 of Proverbs 28. The person that confesses their sin and doesn't hide them is basically a person that fears God. And we can see with a biblical fear of God. And going back to Genesis 3, we see that Adam and Eve didn't have this fear of God of awe and alarm of who God was because they didn't run to God and confess their sin. They ran from God and then God had to draw it out of them. So for us, then, we want to be men and women as believers that are are quick to confess our sin. We run to God. We run to Christ in order to to confess what we've done. If you're sick and and you want to be well, you have to admit what? You have to admit that you are sick. You're not going to get well most of the time if you just do this kind of, I'm going to ignore it. You know, there are no problems. I have no issues. No, I'm fine. If you're unhealthy, you have to deal with that. Remember, Jesus Christ came to what? To seek and to save the sinners, those that were not well. And it's when you are, remember, poor in spirit that you are, are blessed. When you hunger and thirst for righteousness, that's when you are, are blessed by God. Have you ever asked Jesus Christ, even initially to forgive you some of you that are listening here um, by zoom or facebook or that are here right now have you ever initially asked jesus lord i'm a sinner would you please forgive me and save me and instead of trying to hide from god or hide your sin you go to god to hide in christ remember first peter three eighteen: he bore our sins himself and only he might bring us to god and when you embrace Jesus and call in the name of Christ, then the Bible says he will save you. So the first dynamic that we must understand is this fellowship, not, not, not our relationship. The Bible says in Christ there is no condemnation. But this warm-hearted, glad, enjoyable relationship that we can have with God 
is maintained by confession of sin. Just remember Psalm 32. You remember Psalm 32, that the confessing Psalms of David are Psalm 32 and Psalm 51. David, for a while, he did not confess his sin. And listen to what he says in Psalm 32, verse 1. How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, and whose spirit there is no deceit. I kept, listen to verse 3. When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as of the fever heat of summer. You know, David is, is miserable, absolutely miserable when he doesn't confess his sin. And then verse 5, I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity. I did not, what? Look at verse 5. I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Adam and Eve did not immediately confess their sin. And David did not either. David had to have Samuel come to him and confront him. Adam and Eve had to have God confront them. Praise God that he pursues us. But this enjoyable fellowship that we can have with God can be severed if we don't confess our sin. Even there are emotional and physical problems that we can have in our life because of unconfessed sin. And I think there can be that can happen a lot of times. As we keep looking at this true story, the story of origins, then we see this second dynamic. And the second dynamic to always, we want to load our mind with, there are consequences when I sin. Yes, the, the, the penalty of sin is borne by Christ on the cross. I, I don't have to go to hell. The, the, the power of sin I, I have right now, so I can overcome temptation and sin. And one day, the, the very presence of sin will be gone forever in my life when I'm in heaven of Jesus praise God. But the Bible still says, what you sow is what you what? Reap. And there are times when God may be gracious and not allow us to fully reap what we've sowed. But there are other times God is going to allow you to reap what you've sowed. So you can learn not to do it again. And we see that in Hebrews twelve five, right? That God will discipline, chastise those he loves. But it's always done in love. But there is the second dynamic now that we see. And the second dynamic is we should be rejecting the idea, the, the practice of blame shifting. Reject blame shifting. The first dynamic is we should understand that if we don't confess our sin, though it's not going to sever us from the Lord, it is going to hinder our relationship with the Lord. And First John says a believer is characterized by what? confessing their sin that's what we need to be about there's a second dynamic in order to always be reminding yourself wait there are consequences of sin and yes there is grace is this we shouldn't be blame shifting others all right i think you can look at it this way if we're not dealing with our sin if we're not confessing our sin usually then we're pointing the finger at somebody else. A, a consequence, in other words, of sin is if we don't take the right path when we sin, 
then what's going to happen is that we hide from God. When we hide from God, then we're not doing business with God and we got in our own sin. And we're going to start pointing to everybody else. We're going to point to, to God. We're going to point to people and we're going to point to Satan. If we ourselves are not willing to say, Lord, I, I blew it. It's my fault. I'm going to say or imply, God, it's your fault. It's this other person's fault. Or the devil made me do it. It's the state's fault. It's somebody's fault, but it's not my fault. So then let's look at this passage and look at these different ways that Adam and Eve shift the blame. Instead of taking the responsibility for their own sin, for their own fault, not just a mistake, but for their sin, they're shifting the blame everywhere else. And first, they blame God. So we want to reject blame shifting, shifting our sin, our responsibility to somebody else. We want to reject that by first not blaming God. And, and maybe you would say, I, I would never blame God for my sin. Well, look at this passage. Look at verse 12. The man said, right, God confronts Adam in verses 9 through 11. And then the man said to God, the woman whom you gave to be with me. And that's the key phrase. The woman you gave to be with me. She gave me from the tree and I ate. So Adam really is blaming the woman and blaming God, but not even blaming himself. And again, we might say, uh, you know, but I, I'm not Adam. I would never blame God for my sin. Well, see what, what God, what, what Adam is doing here. Look back at, at the text. The woman you gave to be with me. And it's not that Adam's doing this. It's not that Adam is saying, God, you sinned and it's your fault. But he's very subtle. He, he's very, in a sense, clever. And maybe he's not even intentionally trying to do this. In other words, he's not maybe even thinking it out logically in his head. He's just, whatever comes into his mind, but it, it reveals his heart. He's basically saying, God, if you really think about it, it's your fault because you gave her to me. It's like if my dad gave me a car and said, don't speed. And then I got in the car and I sped and I got a ticket. And my dad said, you got a ticket. How could you get a ticket? It's not my fault. You gave me the car. Same thing with it's what's happening in this passage. Adam is saying, she was your gift. You gave her to me. So aren't you a little bit responsible? And this is really what James deals with in James chapter 1, verse 13. James dealt with the very same thing. And it's a tremendous passage in James chapter 1. And I just want to note one point here. Look at James chapter 1, verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I'm being tempted by God. James 1, 13. When it says by God, it's the, the Greek is from God. It's the idea, not just that God is the instrumental cause, but even a, a remote cause. We shouldn't even say remotely God is, is the at fault. We shouldn't say certainly directly, but even indirectly, we shouldn't be blaming God. Now, again, you might say, but Tom, I, I would never do that. Well, we can at times because we can say this, Lord, I did sin, please forgive me, but 
It was because of my parents. It was because of my past. It was because of my hormones. It was because of my disposition. It was because uh, of COVID. It was because of the smoke. It was because of school. It was because of where I, I live. It's because of how I grew up. It's because of the spouse you gave me. It's because of my siblings you gave me. It's because of my job you gave me. It's because of my education that you gave me. And all those are ways foundationally that we are saying what yeah in your providence it's your fault because you placed me in this situation and i couldn't handle it but that goes against first corinthians ten thirteen, but says god will never give you a temptation which you cannot what but you can't overcome and stand up under it we have to be very careful because soon we can become victims and as a believer, being believers that have trusted Jesus, the book of Ephesians says what? That you have within you that resurrection power of Christ. And you have all the power in Christ to say no to sin. Romans chapter 6, consider yourself dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Ephesians, Colossians, the, the book of Romans is all about you have the power to say no to Satan. Satan is crushed under the feet of Christ and you're in Christ. You no longer belong into the, the domain of darkness, but you're in, in the kingdom of the beloved son. That's Colossians chapter one. And so we have to be very careful about blaming God because God and Christ is the source of our victory. And as soon as we start blaming God for our sin and temptation, we're really going to grieve in the spirit of God. And this is, it's basic. I don't mean basic in terms of scolding, but what God is teaching Israel here and us in this passage is this is basic for living in the promises of God. We're not perfect. Not yet. We, we will be perfected, but until then, we're going to sin. What do we do when we sin? We're quick to confess, and then when we confess, we don't blame God. And then we're able to lay hold of those promises but not only can we at times blame god we can blame other people look back at verse 12 and adam starts off by saying the woman you gave her to me but he blames his spouse now understand this chapter 2 verse 23 is the first recorded words of Adam, of the first man. And what does Adam do? He writes a love poem to his wife. She's awesome. She's beautiful. She's out of this world. She's, here's my love poem. She, she makes my heart just bump out through my whole chest. She's incredible. Those are his very first words. Very first, the, the very second words recorded by man is what? It's her fault. So his first words are, she's awesome. Man, I love her God. She's great. Second words are, she did it. She made me do it. I did it because she did it. It's her fault. I'm not with her. Wow. In a way, it's kind of humorous, but it's also really sad. Almost immediately, he's rejecting his role, right? As it being the one that is to have the chief responsibility for resembling and reflecting and representing God. First, he praises God for her. Now he blames God for her, and he blames her for his sin. Now, did she have a role in this? Certainly she had a role in this. 
Satan had a role in this. But Adam, his chief responsibility was to image and to mirror, to resemble, to reflect God and to have dominion over the world, including the serpent. And he should have told his spouse, hey, honey, I love you. And what the serpent is saying to you is contrary to God. We need to step away. But instead, he doesn't do that. He doesn't say anything, does what she recommends. And then once he does that, he blames her. Now, that would never, ever happen, I'm sure, in any of your, any of your marriages, any of your relationships. But it does happen. And it has happened. And maybe it's not a spouse. Maybe it's a friend. Maybe it's a parent. Maybe it's an enemy. But we can always find somebody to blame. It's easy to find somebody else to blame. When you look at Psalm 51 and Psalm 32, does David blame anybody else? Why was David, think about it, why was David a man after God's own heart? And and I've said this to some of you before, I would not let my daughter date King David. If King David came to me, first I'd say, dude, you're married to over two women, ain't no way you're going to date my daughter. But even if he was married to a one woman, I would say, your standards are too low, too low, David. No way. But yet he was a man after God's own heart. How could that be? Because he confessed his sin and got right with God and didn't blame other people. He could have said what? He could have said, you know what, God? The pressure was too hard for me. I was a little shepherd boy and I had a couple sheep. And then you came and told me and picked me to be king and you placed me in this position. What do you expect? I didn't come for some kind of big, great, you know, Saul wasn't my daddy. What do you think, God? But David doesn't do that. He doesn't blame God. He doesn't blame other people. He doesn't blame Goliath. He didn't blame Bathsheba. What does he say? In Psalm 51, he says, Lord, I blew it. I transgressed. And you're justified and righteous if you judge me. Quite a confession. And to confess in the New Testament, that Greek word means what? That you agree with God that it's sin. This is what David did. This is what we should do. And this is what Adam and Eve, at least here in this passage, don't initially do. The fact is that each one of us this morning and all the days previously have sinned. And we'll sin today and all this week until Christ comes back. And what's characteristic of being able to lay hold of the promises of God is not being perfect, but practicing this confession before God and then not blaming God, not blaming others. But then even look, keep looking at the the passage by refusing to blame the devil. So we reject blame shifting. We we don't want to blame God. We don't blame other people. My my friends, my spouse, your friends, your spouse, children, uh, whoever could all be involved. But nobody can take my arm and say, you might, and, and twist it. And, okay, I, I have to sin. I'm responsible before God for my own sin. But sometimes, third, we can even refuse to blame the devil. I mean, we can blame the devil, so we need to refuse to do that. Keep looking at, at this passage. Look at verse 13. And actually, the, the woman, in one sense, is more correct than God than uh, Adam. The woman is more Eve is more correct than Adam. In one sense, look at verse thirteen. Then the Lord God said to the woman, 
what is this you have done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Is she being honest? Yes. <laughs> so Adam and Eve apparently wasn't as godly as his wife, which is often true. It seems that Eve was more honest than God, than, than Adam. Eve was more honest than Adam. The serpent deceived me and I, and I ate. So we don't want to blame shift onto Eve too much, but we can see in a passage, instead of her saying, it's my fault and I allowed the serpent to deceive me and so I ate it. So what I want us to see, in other words, is this. Had God already clearly told Eve what to do? Yes. Chapter 2, verses 9 to 17. So even though we can be deceived, there is a responsibility to not allow yourself to be deceived. In other words, 1 Timothy chapter 2 and Genesis is not saying this. Eve was not as smart as Adam, and that's why she fell. It's not saying that. This passage isn't saying Eve was less wise than Adam, and that's why she fell. No. It's more of the fact that Adam deliberately and intentionally disregarded and totally went for it. Eve was deceived, but there's a culpability in being deceived because God's word was clear. And she needed to be, and we need to be clear and careful about blaming the devil. Especially as a believer, because you have power of the devil, right? First John 4, verse 4, greater is he that's in you that's in the world. But too often we can be like Flip Wilson. Who remembers Flip Wilson? Maybe two people. Three. Three of four. Yes. Flip Wilson is in five. <laughs> like an auction. Is an old comedian that I know some of you remember. And he used to say what? The devil made me. The devil made me do it. And if we're not careful, we can be like that. And that's the direction of where Eve's confession is going. We want to seek by God's grace to have that confession of, of David where when he's confronted by Samuel, I'm the man. We, we don't want to take as long as David did. By God's grace, may we never do what David did. But we want to have that grace and that commitment as quick as possible to run to God and say, I did it, Lord. It's me. It's my fault. Does Satan have a role to play in our temptation? Sure, he does. But especially as believers, my confession is not agreeing that the devil is, is wicked and he causes people to be tempted. My confession is not saying this person had a role to play in my sin. Satan had a role to play in my sin. God, you, you might have had a role to play in my sin. That's not confession. And sometimes, to be honest, even when we confess our sin to our spouse or to our parents or to our kids or kids or friends or to whoever, we can say what? If we're not careful, we can say, you know what, honey, I, I did this sin. Please forgive me. But it's because you, you know, I, I did this sin at work, but it's because the boss did. And if we're not careful, we can still give all kinds of excuses. There are a lot of reasons for sin. And there's a lot of temptations and things and roles that people play and it, it can be very complex or it can be very simple but the, the core factor is what i sinned because what does james say i wanted something i had a lust i had a desire whatever that might be and i listened to it in my heart and i pursued it 
And so we, we don't practice blame shifting, but rather we run straight to Christ and say, Lord, it, it, it's my fault. So we don't have that no fault insurance with a God. You can't say, Lord, I, you know, I purchased no fault insurance because I have my Bible and I went to church. So I have no fault insurance. It doesn't work with God. It doesn't go that way. Instead, we need to take brothers and sisters, blame shift it, blame shifting and throw it into the waste bin. Just get rid of it. And instead we point to ourselves and say, it's my fault. I was the one. And I'm reminded of that passage in James and in the the New Testament from the words of Jesus. God's opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the the humble. We want to be humble men and women that humbly say, Lord, I blew it. And it's my fault. I am the man. I, I am that woman. Living and thriving in God's promises. In other words, it doesn't require perfection if it did nobody could live in god's promises except for who except for jesus living in god's promises really requires contrition over sin and adam and eve had this ungodly fear not a godly fear in which they were contrite and broken because they were hindering their relationship with god they felt ashamed and instead of running to god they get right they're running from god which is a huge difference We run to God through Christ. The Bible says the blood of Jesus will cleanse you. Does cleanse you from all sin. But you have to run to Christ. Load your mind with the fact that the consequences of sin is bad. But God's grace is much, much greater. Remind yourself of sin's consequences. And even more of God's incredible grace. Let me close with this passage from Romans 5, and I'm not going to read it all, but I think it sums up the thrust of this passage in Genesis. Again, if we want to live well in the promises of God, and I think this is the core of this passage in Genesis, if we want to live well trusting and seizing promises of God, not just living, but thriving in the promised land, thriving in our own life, then we must always remember I'm saved by grace and I'm kept by grace, but there are consequences to sin. And yet God is gracious. Romans chapter five, and I'm not going to read the whole passage, but I want to start in verse 18. So then as through one transgression, there result in condemnation to all men. Even so through one act of righteousness, there resulted justification of life to all men. For as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners Even so, through the obedience of the one, the many will be made righteous. The law came in so that the transgression would increase. But where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Where transgressions increase, grace increases. And when we sin, praise God that God can take that and use that to drive us where? To drive us to himself. Maybe this morning, you need to get right with God about something. In a sense, we all do. But maybe it's been a while since you've really spent time in confessing your sin. Maybe today you can 
renew a practice of taking time, maybe in the morning or in the evening before you go to bed, spend time with the Lord on your knees in prayer, confessing your sin to God. And through that, God will bless you. Lord, we thank you for your word. And we thank you, Lord, that you do pursue us, Lord. You're, you pursued Adam and Eve in so many ways. And even we'll see later, you even promise the gospel, the proto-evangelium. And even you guard them from the tree of life, Lord. All that is grace. You pursued them. You ran after them, Lord. And Lord, we know that you run after us. May all of us respond to you with humility and with repentance and adoration because of your great love. Lord, I'm reminded of Romans 2, 4, which says that it was the, the riches of your kindness that led us to repentance. Lord, may we see, may everybody here seeing or listening, Lord, have a clear vision and a deep understanding of your great kindness and be led to repentance, either for salvation or for this sanctification and growth in Christ, Lord. Bless your word, Lord. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.